What is good, everybody? It's your boy, Chef Buck, back here for another podcast. It's been a few months. It's 3 in the morning. That's not holding me back. We going live and we're going hard. On the eve, or should I say the day of, the madness known as the Final Four, the semi-final game. And in today's podcast, I plan on tackling the latest moves in the NFL, along with, obviously, you guessed it, March Madness. The latest of the madness. My thoughts. My analysis. What I'll do is I will go back and forth between talking about NFL and college basketball. First, I want to get the first thing I had written down here regarding the NFL and the the latest in the NFL draft with the quarterbacks in particular. Um, Right now, there are about three quarterbacks that are being mentioned seriously as being taken in the first round. You have Malik Willis, Matt Corral, and Kenny Pickett, along with, in a way, in a sense, Sam Howell. Now, I will be going into into further detail on what teams I think they could these players could potentially be a good fit for, and what spot I think they'll be. I will expect them to be picked in later on. But right now, I want to go into the latest on their development, how good are they? Where should they be drafted and how soon or later, or so, how soon or late should they be drafted? I think it's clear to everyone that this is a quarterback class that is not nearly as talented as the quarterback class in previous years. I think part of that is clearly as the era of Philip Rivers, Eli Manning, Tom Brady, and Ben Roethlisberger comes to a close with Tom Brady being the last one left standing. A new empire of quarterbacks has, has, has risen. In particular, a lot of the new elite quarterbacks have been drafted in the past since about 2017. You had Mahomes and Watson that one draft. You had Herbert. You had Josh Allen. Lamar Jackson. And I think that definitely sets the bar too high relative to the previous years because we're talking in the previous drafts between, I believe, about 2000. 11 through 2016. If you look at first round quarterbacks, there is really only two that are currently starting in the, in the NFL right now. That would be Derek Carr and that would be Dak Prescott. Or sorry, I, I shouldn't say quarterbacks, but Derek Carr is only one. I should have said Jameis Winston, but he is, himself is even on the edge of being a starting versus backup quarterback. 
But now who do I think is the best quarterback out of these out of these three? And I think it has to be Kenny Pickett, the sixth year senior out of Ocean Township, New Jersey. Now people are are, are down on him because of his his age or his his hand size. But I think what he has done in the past, I think we did this past year is really impressive. The way that he was able to accelerate his level of play from previous years. He's a guy that this year consistently in almost every game threw for over 300 yards. This is a guy who threw for multiple touchdowns in every single game with most of those having three to four. And in one case, he threw six touchdowns that they still lost. And it's not like this guy has been playing against all bad team. This guy threw for three for over three hundred yards against Clemson's defense, one of the best in the league. They were also able they the, the same Clemson defense that was able to shut down the electric electric Wake Forest passing offense and Brock Purdy in the Iowa State offense that had it's had it has multiple skill players that will be playing at the next level. But. To go from having roughly roughly 6.6 yards per attempt to 8.7 is really impressive. But also the fact that you can, with roughly, two years ago in 2019, Kenny Pickett roughly had the same amount of passing yards, or attempts, and went from throwing 3,000 yards to 4,300, and nearly tripled his amount of passing touchdowns. But obviously, I, Colin Cowards has said this a lot, but he says if you have played a number of years, there's obviously reasons to be down on the player. And I can agree with that. So for that reason, I would say if you're, if you're, a, if you're, a, quarter, if you're a team looking for a quarterback to win now, potentially Pittsburgh, I, would, I, could, I could definitely understand taking Kenny Pickett. But with the expectation being he's going to, he's going to come in and play right away and be successful. For that reason, I would say Kenny Pickett, while having while proving himself to be a player that can come come right away, older guy, smaller hands. I would say late first round, early second round. Now the second now the second quarterback um, I kind of want to get into is a guy whose stock has really and name has risen a lot. In the previous in the previous few weeks, and you can understand why. He's a guy that you know not many people had a chance to see in quarterback. He looks flashy. Has a really he looks looked great in his pro day, just like Zach Wilson did. And let's let's look at the positives of Malik Willis here. Strong arm, 
no doubt upside, had a lot of speed. He ran. This is a guy who ran a four five four five zero forty in college. Malik Will or Malik Willis, this the junior out of Atlanta, Georgia, specifically Roswell. Now here's where I, I come in to be a critic of Malik Willis. First of all, his stats are not that impressive from a passing standpoint. 27 and 12, 2,800 yards. Now the question, my question is, why are people saying that he should be a first-round quarterback? With some people even saying that the Lions should take him with the second overall pick. Every chance this guy had to prove himself, he failed. And in particular, I'm thinking of is he played the the this the, the Ole Miss defense that Bryce Young was able to have a lot of success with, and he threw for two interceptions with no touchdown passes and only threw for 173 yards. This is a guy who spent most of his season this past year playing against. Sunbelt and Conference USA opponents. Only three for 205 yards against Syracuse pass offense, by the way. Where Malik Willis's skill set is the most impressive is rushing attack. Rushed for almost 1,000 yards this past year. So my question to all of you Malik Willis fans who clearly... Made the, made the determination that Malik Willis should be an early first-round pick based on none, no facts at all, purely based on film and emotion. What makes you think that Malik Willis is a first-round pick? Because clearly to me it looks like you are buying an asset that is not nearly at the value that it should be at. You're buying something that's been boosted in price by a substantial amount. Now, why do I? Why am I so adamant that he should not be a first-round pick? Well, who is the player that arguably in the last two drafts Malik Willis is the closest resembling to? That'd be Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts had more passing or better passing numbers, more touchdowns. And while Malik Willis ran for 990 yards, roughly, Jalen Hurts ran for 1,200 yards, averaging 5.5 yards per carry, which is extremely impressive. And not just against Conference USA and Sunbelt opponents, these are Big 12 opponents. Which is not the same Big 12 it was six years ago with Air right offenses left and right. The Big 12 has changed, has, has changed pretty significantly with numerous defensive-minded coaches coming in, such as Dave Miranda. But why should... And, and, what, and, what, and what happened with Jalen Hurts? He was picked in the second round. And don't get me wrong, he's played solidly in the past couple of years. Solid. He's proved he's capable of being a starting quarterback in the league. But at the same time, the Eagles aren't willing to commit to him long term. Why? Well, we saw with Lamar Jackson, we saw as as 
a running quarterback like Malik Willis and Jalen Hurts are, it, the injuries start to progress as you go along. Your value as a quarterback depreciates really rapidly after your first few years in the league. There's no guarantees that you're going to be a long-term quarterback in the league if you're, if you're a run-first quarterback like those two quarterbacks are. So why should, why should Malik Willis be picked in the first round, in the early part of the first round in particular, when Malik Willis and Jalen Hurts have very similar playing styles Yet, it's clear, the evidence in the data clearly backs it up that Jalen Hurts' resume in college is better because the stats are better with a stronger schedule. At least when you had Trey Lance, you, this, we saw that the stats indicated that he, success by the fact that he did not throw a single interception in his one year as a starter. And then the third quarterback is Matt Corral. Matt Corral being the same quarterback that I said would have a good shot at winning the Heisman Trophy in 2021. And I was somewhat vindicated in the fact that heading into the Alabama game, Matt Corral was the front runner to win the Heisman Trophy. Did you, this, this senior out of uh, Thousand Oaks, California. Yet he, despite the fact that he played rough this past year, his stock rose magically. Now, did any, did any draft have Matt Corral going in the first two rounds heading this year? Not that I could recall. I, th- I saw maybe some third and fourth round projections, but I saw nothing in the first two rounds. And why... Why? It, let me ask to all you people out there that are projecting Matt Corral in the first two rounds, why do you have him in the first two rounds? I saw... The reason I, I was hiding him is because I saw a gunslinger. I saw a guy who was potentially Aaron Rodgers, a guy willing to chuck the ball downfield. But you're telling me that Matt Corral is going to be a, should be a first-round pick when his numbers decline in about every statistical category. Passing yards, touchdowns, yards per attempt, Clearly, the, I, I, the three most important factors in a quarterback. But to give him credit, he had reduced his, his interception total. Did they run the ball out more? Yes. But when it comes down to it, I think that the things that are bad about Matt Corral, I think... Really break down the three into three um, areas. One being the field processing issues. Not only did he, did he struggle with interceptions a lot through, I think it was fifteen interceptions in a shortened season in two thousand twenty. But also, the minute he's not find open receiver, he is gonna take off and try to scramble for the first down, which. Helped him a lot in college, but running for 20-plus times in the NFL is unsustainable. Clearly. The second one issue I have with Matt Corral is injury problems. I mean, how many times... I, I, could, I could count at least three times this past season where Matt Corral had, was forced to leave a game due to injury, a nagging injury of some sort. 
Once was against Auburn, once, once was against Tennessee, and the third time was against Baylor that everyone remembers the most. But how can we depend on a guy that, is, that, leaves, that has left the game and re-entered so many times in just the past year? I think it's got to be called into question. Third issue, I think, is his character. I think that this guy could, could potentially be a Baker Mayfield waiting to happen. This is a guy who got into a fight with Wayne Gretzky's son in high school. We saw him get ejected from, the, from, a old, from a Mississippi State game his freshman year because he got into a fight with a player. At, and when it comes down to it all, though, we're talking about a guy who has the durability of, I don't know, Tua. He has the interception ability of of anyone, the worst, Eli Manning, throwing six picks in a game. And he has the personality, character, ego issues of Baker Mayfield. To me, those are three issues you do not want to be a part of if you're an NFL franchise. Now, before I get back into the NFL, I want to start talking, I want to get into some of this March Madness stuff here. The first thing I'm going to talk about is the Big Ten. Just in general, I'm going to get into more of the team specifically as I go on. But with the Big Twelve or the Big Ten getting how many was it? Was it ten? Was it nine, ten teams in the tournament this year? The expectations were undoubtedly high on them this year, and the facts are clear. The Big Ten did not live up to those expectations at all. Um, not a single team made it past the Sweet 16. Only two made it past the round of 32. Number of teams got absolutely shellacked in the, in the when the play when play took place. The question is why? Why did the Big Ten look so bad? Why did they play so bad? Is it because of the talent? Well, clearly not. Clearly not. There's numerous five stars, numerous uh, projected lottery picks coming out. This is arguably one of the most talented um, uh, slave teams in terms of lottery level talent the Big Ten has ever had. It's clear, I think it's clearly has to be something involving the coaching. And I'll get more into the specifics of that as I carry on here. But first, I think I should start with Purdue. Um, Purdue, I think, should have done a lot better in the tournament. I, I had them, I picked them to go all the way before the tournament started. And this is a team, no doubt, has a lot of challenges with, or with a lot of talent with Hunter and uh, Stefanovic, but most notably Jaden Ivey. And... There are so many mismatches in this in this game in their game versus St. Peter's. Purdue is coming off a game against St. Peter's where they set that NCAA tournament record for most free throw attempts in a game. On the other hand, St. Peter's allowed the second most free throw attempts by any team in all of college basketball in 2022. 
and that doesn't even and not let's not forget St. St. Peter's also plays a very slow-paced basketball tempo, so that those numbers could easily have been a lot worse. Purdue also has seven foot four inch Zach. That's the biggest match mismatch of all. Zach Eady being seven foot four and Trevion Williams being six foot ten and really, really muscular, really thick in the post. While St. Peter's tallest forwards were six foot seven and sometimes even shorter. So you would think the game plan would be try to exploit the weak the weaknesses of um the inside. And Zach Eady had been incredibly productive for most of the season. I believe he averaged over double digits. Definitely took it to Michigan State and put up 19 against us. My, my Spartans. But this guy was missing jump shots left and right. Okay. Um, for, for whatever reason, Purdue could not make any shots in the post. It's pretty embarrassing to me. Zach E went. He did go five for seven, but he's. That's not the worst part of it, though. He's was he getting bodied by people about a foot shorter than him? Yes, but. Zach E did not get. A, despite Zach E being seven foot four inches tall. He did not get a single rebound in the whole first half. Now, Jaden Ivey, I was high on him kind of heading into, the, into this game. I thought he could be, has the potential to be a John Morant-type player. But the fact that he disappeared in this game, he was nowhere to be found, I think should definitely impact his draft stock. The fact that he had five points with about two minutes left in the game is concerning to me. The fact that you, can't, you should be able to take over a game in that spot, in my opinion, and I think anyone else would agree with me. But it's clear that the, the game plan was to try to feed the post as much as possible. And for some reason, they could not exploit the mismatches. I think this game is clearly an issue of coaching. They continue to try to do the same exact game plan. Just feed the post. And in my opinion, I think they're forcing it too much. They didn't even try. I mean, Sasha Stefanovic, I thought, played really well with shooting the ball pretty well. He hit multiple three, hit three threes. But I think I just think that the issue on this in this game was the fact that they they continually they continuously tried to feed the post. I think that St. Peter's is able to adjust. I think if they could just try to run their normal offense while still feeding the post, I think they would have been a lot more successful. But I think they should have ran their uh, their same typical offensive schemes instead of just continually trying to force it to the post. With Trevion Williams and Zach Eady, because Trevion Williams had 15 between um between uh um Zach Eddy and Trevion Williams, it accounted for almost half the team's t- uh, combined um, field goal attempts in that game. So keep that in mind. Now I want to talk about um. Before I get back into the college basketball, I want to talk about the Packers here. And when I talk about the Packers, people think of the trade of Devontae Adams, and um, it's obviously pretty significant. 
But I think after what happened with Aaron Rodgers, there's obviously a lot, but the fact that he he signed a very large deal, I believe it's about what, fifty thousand fifty million a year in that range. Now I I wanna I wanna begin by saying something with the Packers that I guarantee you most people do not know about. In 2021, the Packers allowed 4.6 rushing yards per game. For those keeping track at home, that's one of the worst rushing defenses in the league. So I think bottom five or so. Now if you adjust those stats, the stats will tell you they played a pretty challenging schedule from a rushing standpoint. They did play Cleveland. Cleveland rushed about 300 yards on them. They played Baltimore. They played San Francisco. And they played the Rams, I believe, the Seahawks. But what they won't tell you is that number of number of those games, such as the Ravens, they were playing with their best rushers. Also, When you talk about plays against, about 60% of the plays run against, ran against the Packers in this past season were passing plays. Meaning 40% of those plays were the only plays that could... The, only, the opposing teams only ran 40% of plays to exploit their, their biggest weakness. Why was this bull? Well, in part because Aaron Rodgers was able to feed Devonta Adams and get ahead in games... So teams would have to pass the ball more. Well, what's going to happen now that Devontae Adams isn't there anymore? Do I think that the Packers' loss of Devontae Adams is big? Yes. But do I think they can still survive? Yes. But my big, do I think that they'll, that they'll regress big? Yes, I think it's in large part to the issues with their defense. Because I think the Packers can't afford to have even the slightest regression in offensive production particularly early in the game, early in their games. Because teams will be able to rush, run the ball a lot more, and a lot more effectively to stay in the game because... Okay, which leads me, leads me to my next point about the Packers. In 2018, the Packers fired Mike McCarthy midseason. They were a West Coast team. They were passing the ball a lot. They would have, my comparison to them is they're in the Big Ten, think about it, they're, they're Ohio State. They have Aaron Rodgers, but you have, you invest a lot in your offense, in, in, the, in particular the passing game. You had Devontae Adams, you have Jordy Nelson, and you have Martellus Bennett. But then comes in, well the problem with that though was, you were getting just destroyed on defense every game. Among the worst defenses in the league. And you, and you also had a terrible roster. What happens when Aaron Rodgers goes down? They lose big time. And even the, in, 29, in 2018, when Rodgers played all 16 games, they still lost because the roster was not good at all. Then they transitioned to Matt LaFleur coming in from Tennessee. And think of this as more of the Iowa-style football. 
They're looking to go from a truly just straight passing offense to a more balanced attack, and if probably more of a running game than a passing game. So you're taking one of the top quarterbacks in the league into an offense that is a run for, is arguably a run first or run oriented offense, which can kind of make you understand why Rodgers gets more upset. They also they improved their offense and they improved their their whole roster entirely, especially their defense. So my question is, why should the Packers invest that much money if you're going to have a run first offense when you're going to be giving the ball to, when you when your intention is to run the ball efficiently, which they were, have been able to do successfully the past couple of years? But if your goal is to play to have one of the best defenses in the league and the best running game, running best rushing attacks in the league. Why would you use that much cap space in Aaron Rodgers when you could arguably do better with by having by building through the draft, adding occasional free agents in one of the most with having the most the best franchises in the league that people want to play for and and focus on your strengths and build the best roster in the league every single year. Aaron Rodgers is old and there have been a lot of rumors by teammates such as as Jermichael Finley about the, the roster, about Rodgers not being a good leader as, as, a, as a quarterback. There's a realistic possibility that the Packers might be better off without Aaron Rodgers, as crazy as it, so, as it sounds, in large part to his, caps, his cap hit, uh, hindering the Packers' ability to build, build the best roster in the league, which they probably could do with that $50 million in cap space that they would have to pay Rodgers now because he, I mean, I, if I, I mean, I would be in this, I would want the same thing if I was in his spot too. Now, um, let's see here. One more thing. I'm going to go with a lot of the college basketball, but Josh Allen, I think is, um, I think he's, you know, so I was looking at the Bills' offense lately. The Bills have one of the best rosters in the league, obviously. Best, best pass defense in the league last year. But I was looking at the Bills' offense. Josh Allen only had a pass rating, a pass rating of 91 last year, which is not even, I believe it's like 14th or so, lower than Carson Wentz, lower than a number of players. And I think that and also to take note of Josh Allen was I believe only sacked, I think his his sack percent the Bill's sack percentage I believe was around two percent. And the typical sack the typical the average NFL sack percentage is around five or six percent. Yet Josh Allen's is around two percent. So and before and I I think Josh Allen had one of the best seasons of any quarterback in 2020. But in 2021, Josh Allen had a really good receiving core. Yes, the best defense, but probably the best in particular, in particular the best pass defense in the league. Some of the best pass protection in the league, according to the stats. 
but you you throw for you throw for 16 interceptions and have a 91 passer rating. And just like Malik Willis, people think Malik Willis is the best quarterback in the league. A lot of people say that Josh Allen is the best quarterback in the league right now. I thought I thought he's in my opinion, I thought he was top three to top five. But the fact that he threw for 16 yard interceptions, he will be one of the he will be a contender for the league lead in interceptions next year. And every year. But I'm sorry to all you Josh Allen's just Josh Allen worshippers out there saying he's the best quarterback in the league. I have to say this. The best quarterback in the league does not turn the ball over three times against the Jacksonville Jaguars, two interceptions, and a fumble. 9-6 loss to the, the, the best quarterback in the league does not lose a game 9-6 to the worst team in the league. That's just, that just doesn't happen. But I still am, I, I think Josh Allen can get better. I would still take him over a lot of quarterbacks simply because of his size and his arm strength and his ability to run the ball as well. That and his, his that's got to be taken seriously. And by the way, looking at his injury history in two, in college and his first year in the NFL, he's he is about due for an injury based on his injury history. Not saying I I want it to happen. Not saying it will happen or that I think it will happen. But he is due for an injury based on his injury history at Wyoming at Reedley College in um. Fresno County, California, and in Buffalo. Now, I I want to get into the seeding of the tournament. I think it was bad. I think it was poorly done. You know, you could say some ways the committee's been proven right. Some ways they've been proven wrong. Well, the first thing I will never understand is why Kentucky was seeded higher than Tennessee. In a lot of ways, Tennessee and Kentucky had a relatively similar um, resume. Um, Kentucky, I believe they had this roughly the same outright record. They had the same conference record. They finished in the same spot in the conference. But there's two factors that I think I mean that really separate the two teams. If you look at if you look at the data and the stats. Tennessee so not only did Tennessee beat Kentucky in two out of the three matchups, which which I think head to head matchup has to be the clear tiebreaker indicator. At least that's how it is in the NFL. In every other sport. Record of head-to-head matchups, and Kentucky, Kentucky, or Tennessee had a better strength of schedule overall, and in particular, the non-conference strength of schedule I believe was stronger. Which the tournaments, the committee used to say that they use as a primary determining factor in seeding. So Kentucky. I, I, I understand they have, have more talent, NBA talent, but the factors that they said that they used in previous years, head-to-head, strength of schedule, non-conference strength of schedule, 
to try to incentivize teams to play challenging non-conference schedules. Not being utilized clearly. Now the other issue I had was, so heading into the, I believe the same week of the tournament, I made a bracket of my own. On Tuesday or Wednesday of the week of the selection show, I had North Carolina as a five or six. I had, I had North Carolina as a five seed. Joel already had North Carolina as a six seed. Duke was around the two to three range. They always were. They I had him as I had him as a three on earlier in the week and on selection Sunday. I had Duke as a three seed. So what happens between that Wednesday and Sunday? Both Duke and North Carolina lose to the same Virginia Tech team in respect in a red hot Virginia Tech team that had, that had won, I believe, a number of games in a row. Good defensive team as well. So what happens following that? Well, North Carolina did not have a very strong strength of schedule. I believe they only had four quadrant one wins, the entire top twenty five quadrant one wins the entire year, which is not very impressive. Looking looking at the strength of schedule. So what happens? North Carolina falls from a 5 to a 6 seed all the way to an 8 seed. Meanwhile, Duke, who doesn't, I mean, they don't have, they play in the same conference, not necessarily the best strength of schedule, but they rise from 3 and they stay at 2. Now we know Duke, looking, looking at how they've been playing, that 2 seed looks justified. But how can you justify moving North Carolina down 2 spots based on the same loss to the same team? I think the main criticism I have of the committees, I think that they, is the erosion of the independent institution integrity of the committee. Because I remember when I was in sixth, seventh grade, I read a book about I read a book about the committee actually, and they basically take a group of these athletic directors and top level executives at these collegiate institutions. And they've locked them in quarantine style in these Indianapolis hotels where they are forced to go, and they cannot leave this hotel at all. They're forced to look at this data and make numerous scenarios, scenario brackets. And and finally, so by Sunday, they basically have a bracket prepared before the games even happen, numerous scenarios. But it it looks to me like these, these brackets are almost... The same as Jolinardi's. I mean, I remember in previous years when Colorado, when Colorado, for example, had beaten a really solid Kansas State team three times, they were projected to be a nine or ten seed, and, they, and, and the committee, using their stats and their research, left them out of the tournament. Over, and they put VCU over them. And what happened? VCU went to the Final Four, the Virginia Commonwealth. Can, and can I, do I believe that the, the committee today, this today, would do anything similar to that? No, I would not, because I think they're, they're basically they're simply becoming a puppet institution of Joe Lenardi. Um. Next, I want to get into now. Here's here's where I go into about the um. I kind of want to get into the issues with Big Ten coaching, because you will hear constant praise. Yes, the Big Ten coaches are so great. They're so good. 
you're constantly your praises about Jawan Howard. He's an NBA-level talent. Tom Izzo, Matt Painter, who has never made a Final Four, probably the most overrated coach in college basketball. Fran McCaffrey. Fran McCaffrey, who's impressive, in, who, in my opinion, his accomplishments are better at, at um, Siena than they were at, were at Iowa. And Greg Gard. Yes, Greg Gard. But first, I want to get into Iowa because... You know, everyone's praising Iowa because you know they won their first, um, their first uh, Big Ten tournament in just like what twenty seventeen. I think their last time they won it was two thousand six, maybe. Which I believe was the same year that that was the year they lost. No, two thousand five because that was the year they lost to Northwestern State. <laughs> Ironic, both first round exits. But um. This is a team that led the led the league and led the nation really in scoring, averaging eighty five points a game, and they had one of the most impressive rosters in the league: Keegan Murray, um, Jordan Mohannon, and really a number of guys. But I don't understand how you can score so many points consistently. Against the best defenses, in the, some of the best defenses in the league, with in the best talent in the league, that clearly you you don't really come prepared against. You come out flat against Rich, Richmond. I mean, sixty three points they scored against Richmond. I don't think any Big Ten team even held them that. Well, besides Rutgers in that forty eight forty six game. But I, it's just, and I this is the same criticism I have, I've had. Over Fran McCaffrey for years. He puts family values over and family loyalty over winning. Keith starting starts Connor McCaffrey all the time, despite the fact that he never scores and is just been simply washed up over the past few years. Starts Patrick McCaffrey too all the time. This guy scored three points in his combined last three in three games. He scores three points. In four games, he scores six points. Yet he plays roughly uh, twenty minutes a game. Yet you have Chris Murray. Same size as Keegan Murray, maybe not as good, quite as good of a shooter, but player efficiency stats will tell you that their player efficiency between Keegan and Chris is relatively the same. Yet you don't really play Chris Murray a whole lot. You play him roughly about half of the game. And I think that the, the Peyton Sanford, I think he's really talented too. This freshman out of uh, Waukee, Iowa, really impressive. Six. Uh, Students is about six seven. You can shoot. Shoots about forty percent from the field. So this guy's impressive, man. I. It's just, you know, Iowa fans. How much longer are you gonna take this? Every single year, the the analysts on BTN will tell you that this is a year that Iowa's gonna be great. They finally had that great player that's gonna push them over the top. Your first was back in 2013, 2014, 2015. They were ranked for the first time in forever. They, 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 went from, they went from being top 20 to being an NIT team. 
Then it was Luca Garza. They look Garza, they're going to be amazing. What, what do you know? They're a two seed. Last year, jumped 95 points to Oregon and losing the second round. Not this year. I mean, how much longer are you going to worship Fran McCaffrey? I mean, I think you can't just put your blind loyalty on these, to this team, on this coaching staff. Now I want to get into Wisconsin here. Um, Wisconsin is a team that did not have a lot of expectation coming into this year. Right? Remember? They weren't even ranked for the better part of the, the first part of the, the season. But now all of a sudden, because they win, they, 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 they hold teams to very low amounts of points. Winning games very near, most of their games by very small margins. If they're a three seed, they finish because they, they win. They get a share of the Big Ten title. I believe uh one, two, three, four, three, well, four, five, about, about other last five games, four of them were decided by single digit single digit or less. Now I don't I don't think anyone can remember can forget the, the tapes that were leaked about Greg Gard and a players only meeting talking about how much they hated Greg Gard and how players allegedly were saying that they will never talk to Greg Gard ever again. They will block him from everything because he's a scumbag, he's a terrible influence. That's it. And, and remember, I'm not trying to relitigate this issue. But let's not forget Jawan Howard punched Greg Gard. Now, was Jawan Howard's actions justified? No. But think about think about what that the fact that Jawan Howard actually tried to punch one of his assistant coaches and got into a confrontation with Greg Gard. What does that say about Greg Gard already knowing what his players had said about him? Do you think that Juwan Howard would ever do that to Tom, say Tom Izzo, um, Fran McCaffrey, uh, Matt Painter? How about it? Heck, would he even do that to John Calipari? No. That just shows how little respect that he has for Greg, a guy like Greg Gard. I've been very critical of Greg Gard because I think people, I mean, because I think people try to compare, say Greg Gard's been doing good, a good job based on, you know, kind of what it's been since the start of the Bo Ryan era. But the thing is, is that there is no, I think, Wisconsin basketball is not what it was 20 years ago. It's one of the best and most desired places to play in college basketball. One of the best programs in the country. It's a talent hotbed. You, you have a number of some of the best athletes in all of high school basketball that have come out of Minnesota and in Wisconsin high schools in the past 
five years. Most of them have gone elsewhere. Some of them have gone to Wisconsin. As a matter of fact, most of the four the four star recruits, the ones that are good enough to go to the Dukes and the Carolinas and Kentuckys, they go to Wisconsin. And they lose. And really good. They they're really Wisconsin's really good physical inside, but they really struggle to score. Is is Davidson an issue on the team? I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure. But um I think that people should be concerned about Johnny Davis because, you know, I think people want to ignore the, the fact that he's disappearing from games for, for long periods of time, too. We're talking about Johnny Davis going 3 for 19 from the field against Michigan State and going starting the game 2 for 12 against Colgate. It's easy to say that, oh, well... He got got better. He's still good, but I think the fact that they're he that he is getting so many looks is and not producing as as good as as he can is is not a good sign. And the fact that I think that the Keegan Murray did not get Player of the Year over him for the Big Ten over Giant Davis is a disgrace to me because I mean I think Giant Davis or Keegan Murray didn't didn't necessarily shoot as much as he did. It wasn't as efficient, but also shooting you know close to fifty percent. The field is really impressive to me as a wing player. I think Ohio State basketball could potentially be in a dumpster fire situation because I think Chris Holtman is a very incredibly overrated coach. It could be in the, on the hot seat in the coming years. But the fact that you're losing EJ Liddell, you know, the NBA, a number of other players leaving for, leaving for graduation. So I think that could be a tough situation coming in Columbus next year. And I think team to watch closely is Nebraska for next year because, uh, I mean, Fred Hoiberg, I don't know what's happened with him. He was really successful at Iowa State. Not so much at Nebraska. But I think the fact, if if both players come back next year, um, Trey McGowan's and Alonzo Verge, that could very easily be the best team in the league next year. Um, or not Mexican league. One of the better, one of the most improved teams in the conference next year. Um, let's see. Uh, now I'm actually going to go to, actually, I'm going to go, before that, I'm going to talk about Michigan State, and I'm going to talk about, uh, I'm going to talk about, talk about Iowa State, but I think that Minnesota fans need to take something into consideration here. Um, you know, people are really high on Ben Johnson right now. They're saying that, um. You know, he's going to be some great coach because Minnesota outperformed. They're going to be close to a 500 team because when, despite the fact that everyone's projecting they're working on a single Big Ten team, they had all these doomsday predictions on the team. And I'm not knocking on, on Ben Johnson. But what does it tell you that TJ Otzelberger was able to do with this team just this past year? Um, this is a guy who was able to bring in Come in and bring a team from two wins to the Sweet 16 in just one year. He bought in. Um, so he brings in Gabe Kalsher from Minnesota. Gophers could have kept him. 
He brings in Isaiah Brockington. He's from Temple. He's dominating. But he's a clearly a guy that's that's liked and respected by his players, and is real is more than capable of bringing in top recruits from the transfer portal, even when his team's not necessarily the greatest. Just keep that in mind, Gopher fans. Um, TJ, that's that's what a successful coach looks like. It's the Eric Musselman's like that. I think you just got to take note of that because what's going on, I would say, from a coaching perspective, has clearly been successful. Now, Michigan State, already going downhill. Two of the most disastrous teams I've seen in a long time at Michigan State with no no hope at all when I was watching them play. Barely made the tournament a year ago. First four in. Now, this year they play absolutely disgracefully. get blown every time I watch them. But now we're talking about number of players leaving. Uh, Gabe Brown is already graduating. He's a senior. Marcus Bingham entered the draft. Now, now Mark, Max Christie thinks he's going to go to the draft, and despite the fact that he, in his last three games, almost had more turnovers and fouls combined than actual points. This dude was, projected, was supposed to be a five-star, top ten high school player. Did not play up expectations at all. Didn't even average 10 a game. He can easily come back and be one of the best players in the Big Ten next year. And very likely improve his draft stock. But instead he's going to try to test the waters. Probably be at you know, 20 to 30 range. Out to the lottery, but first round still. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a very good call for him at all. But, oh, Michigan State might get Jalen Bridges, whatever his name is, from West Virginia. But I think Tyson Walker is a guy to watch. Struggled early on. But I think he he showed some flashes, particularly when he scored 26 against Illinois. That was incredibly impressive. But I think Tyson Walker could really be one of the better players in the Big Ten next season. Uh, two of the last things I want to get into involve sports. Uh, first of all, I think Trey Lance, actually, I'll probably just get in the center, but Trey Lance, I think the expectations are kind of unrealistic. I'll just say that. The other thing is, I was looking through a draft profile. And I saw Tanner Morgan's name on Walter Football. I mean, someone's going to be fired from their job. Who the hell would want Tanner Morgan on their team? Hold on, the Gophers even wanted to come back. Well, first of all, that's fake news because Tanner Morgan is not in the draft this year. That's fake news. Second of all, like I said, who would want Tanner Morgan on their team? Is he is he rejected to go to... I don't even know. It's just... Why would Tanner Morgan enter the draft? Human resources management guy... I mean, come on. I feel like I'm being duped here. But anyway, I think that's all I have for now. Have to keep keep it coming, fellas. Proud of what I've done, so it's gonna be a good podcast. Peace out.